Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Security Leaders, the podcast, where we speak to security managers, chief security officers, specialists, and professionals from across the security spectrum. My name is Neil Sutton, editor of Canadian Security Magazine. My guest for this episode is Imran Ahmad, a partner at law firm Blake, Cassells, and Graydon, LLP. Imran has a specialization in technology, cybersecurity, and privacy law. He works closely with clients to develop and implement strategies related to cyber threats and data breaches. He also advises on legal risk assessments, compliance, due diligence and risk allocation, security, and data breach incident preparedness and response. Imran is a well-known expert and speaker on these topics, including previous events hosted by Canadian Security Magazine. I got in touch with Imran to get his view on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on cybersecurity and privacy in Canada, particularly with the recent emergence of contact tracing software. Before my conversation with Imran, here's a quick word from our podcast sponsor, Commissioners. Start seeing information security as an investment and not, or not as an expense. Now people see that if you screw up, this has a cost, it has a reputational cost. The past couple of years, you've seen uh, the idea of secure by design working its way throughout the food chain. It's something that's that spawned from the very bottom of the pyramid. It's working slowly, but surely its way up the ranks. People are integrating security in the very process they're building as a veritable cornerstone of their business. My name is Jean-Philippe Descari-Mathieu. I'm the head of cybersecurity for the Quebec division of the Commissionaires. To learn more, go on commissionaire.ca. Thank you, Commissionaires, for your support of this podcast. Here's my conversation with Imran Ahmad. So thank you very much, Imran, for joining us today. Um, I wanted to get together to talk about some of the cyber and privacy challenges that uh, we've been facing in the last couple of months with the spotlight on COVID-19. Maybe we'll just start with with cybersecurity, since that seems to be the one on everybody's mind. Since we've been back at home, uh, working from home for the most part for the last couple of months due to the pandemic, have you seen any increased concerns around cybersecurity? What sort of thing are you hearing currently? We did a study just before COVID-19 became a real issue. And so we have a baseline element that we can uh, measure sort of the current situation versus the past situation before COVID-19 was at the forefront. And one of the things we noticed was two things. One, hackers are trying to take advantage of sort of the IT network's inherent vulnerabilities when people are working remotely. So what does that mean? That means typically when you look at an IT infrastructure for any company, it includes hardware, software, and data. And what the hackers are trying to do is really take advantage of any hardware deficiencies or any software deficiencies. And the way they're trying to do that is, you know, a lot of people are using uh, laptops for dual use, meaning work and for personal use. You may have situations where uh, they're taking a work laptop and bringing it home uh, and working from that or using their home personal device for accessing work resources. And that's where we're seeing the most issues coming up from hackers. What they're trying to do is basically get access to a portal, get access to, you know, a, a VPN type tunnel to access a virtual desktop to be able to then get access to the actual environment of the organization. So we've seen an uptick in the number of incidents that have been reported to us. In fact, uh, if we take sort of mid-March as a time when COVID-19 really launched uh, remote working for most organizations, the first two weeks were pretty quiet in the sense that we had the same volume of incidents being reported to us. What was interesting was in the beginning of the month of April and then pretty much consistently since then to today, uh, it's been a three to five times increase in terms of reportable incidents, not just to us as legal counsel working with our clients to help them sort of navigate through, 
what an investigation looks like, but also in terms of privacy commissioners and other third parties who may have been affected by it. So significant increase since this happened. And the next wave that we anticipate, quite frankly, is when there's a return back to work, when folks are returning back to their regular organizations and they're reconnecting those laptops that may or may not have been infected, we anticipate seeing more issues pop up at that point as well. Okay, that is a serious increase. What are people doing to try and address this situation, both short-term and potentially long-term? So a lot of organizations had anticipated some level of remote working uh, at some point in their uh, in their organization's life. Um, they did not anticipate the majority of their workforce being moved over to remote working in a very short period of time. And that's really where the risk is. So a lot of the steps that had been taken were the right steps, but were sort of rolled out in a much more slower pace or cadence than they would have otherwise. So for example, some organizations have been over the past few years migrating over to Office 365 as an email solution, which is an excellent solution to use. What they have been a bit slower to implement have been, for example, two-factor authentication. So this is the automated generated code or token that's generated by, um, by whatever resource you're using, like an RSA or, or a Duo, to be able to make sure that if you enter your username and password, you need that additional layer of security and a code to put in that's randomly generated to access your mailbox. In, in the course of this COVID-19 remote work, a lot of organizations that have not previously rolled out 2FA uh, are now trying to push that out quicker than they, they, than they would have otherwise. And the reason for that is if you don't do that, the odds of a hacker accessing your username and password is much more significant. And once they have access to your mailbox, they can conduct a variety of things like wire fraud or other types of, of fraudulent activity. There's a top five list we've developed. So number one, make sure you've got two-factor authentication in place. That's really an easy way to avoid any kind of cyber incident that relates to your mailbox and wire fraud. Number two, make sure you remind your staff about good cyber hygiene, uh, being vigilant for emails that are coming in that may look like legitimate emails, but seem to have an abnormal type of request associated with it. Make sure you double check that. Number three, make sure you have proper patching done on a regular basis. I know bandwidth within a lot of IT departments is stretched to the maximum with COVID-19 right now, but having those patches rolled out quickly is a real, real focus right now for most organizations and should be as such as well. Number four, make sure that at the end day, you've got the right protocols and policies in place. And the reason for that is, you, you know, a lot of the policy were designed for a world where people were physically in the office. Uh, if something did go wrong, they could pick up the phone and just type in a four-digit number and reach their, their IT department or whoever else they were trying to contact. Now it's a bit more difficult. Make sure you've got the protocols and policies updated as much as possible. And then the last thing I recommend is I uh, hope they never get a victim of a, of a cyber incident, but to the extent something does happen, you want to make sure you've got the right resources and experts who are there. Make sure you have a conversation with your insurance broker to get the right level of cyber insurance in place. So we're hearing a lot of thoughts about perhaps people working from home on a, on a permanent basis or more flex work, uh, employers perhaps being pressured or encouraged to offer work from home opportunities for their office workers. So looking towards the future beyond the pandemic, there could be more people working from home. What do organizations need to do in order to prepare for that eventuality? So I'll go back to what I mentioned earlier about the three corners of the triangle of an IT network, right? You've got your hardware, you've got your software, and then you've got your data. So if you look at those three, there's three things organizations can do. Make sure that to the extent 
employees are using their personal laptop to access firm resources like a virtual desktop, or if they're using a firm device at home for personal work, for work, but also for personal use, that they employ good cyber hygiene. There are things they can do to make sure that they're complying with that. Number two, as I mentioned earlier, you want to have the right patching for the software in place. And the last one, which is probably not as relevant today in a COVID-19 world, but certainly once we're back to quote-unquote normal, is going to be the use of Wi-Fi and public Wi-Fi in particular. Right now, we're not talking so much about data interception because hackers don't have physical or geographic access to your Wi-Fi necessarily. But it's something that's definitely something that can happen if you're at a Starbucks or another public Wi-Fi access point where you are transmitting data that belongs to clients that may be sensitive in nature because it's confidential within the corporate realm. You want to make sure that's protected. So in a post-COVID-19 world, making sure your hardware is secure and staff know how to use it properly, making sure the software is properly patched so it's as secure as possible, and making sure that the use of public Wi-Fi to the extent it is there uh, is being done in a secure way. So I'd like to pivot this discussion a bit. You mentioned privacy a little bit in our cybersecurity discussion, but I'd like to delve a bit deeper into some aspects of that, particularly against the background of COVID-19. I think the latest discussion point that's come up is the issues around contact tracing apps. It seems to be a very timely thing, uh, possibly used in the fight against uh, tracking COVID-19 and potentially reducing the spread. But what are the, the privacy challenges around deploying such an app to such a, a large population? So there, there are a couple of challenges in Canada um, in particular because we have a very uh, complicated privacy regime. Certainly a lot of folks will gravitate around the federal privacy regime, but there are three other provinces, Quebec, Alberta, and BC, that have their own privacy laws that relate to private sector organizations that collect, use, or disclose personal information. And then on top of that, you have multiple provinces across the country that have personal health information type legislation. So privacy laws that relate to health information that's being collected. So the challenges we often have is who's collecting the information, for what purpose they're collecting it, and are they obtaining the appropriate level of consent from the individuals who are giving that information. So contact tracing or any kind of tracing application, generally speaking, you know, if, if I will be traced through an application on my cell phone or my mobile device, I want to know what information is going to be tracked. I want to know what it's going to be used for, and then I need to consent for it to be, to be collected for that purpose. That's where I think the challenges are. A lot of the questions we see with the various privacy commissioners' offices who are looking into this issue are trying to understand who's collecting the information, why they're collecting it, and are they getting the proper level of consent. That's level one. Level two, if you drill down into our key privacy uh, principles, there are requirements to comply with when you do collect personal information. So for example, how long are you going to keep the information? Generally speaking, keeping personal information in perpetuity is not permissible. You should only keep it for the purposes for which it was collected and only for as long as it's necessary. And there are other privacy considerations that come into place, for example, data minimization. So the goal should be to get to the objective you're trying to get to with collecting the minimum level or minimum amount of personal information if possible. And that's where a lot of companies will struggle a little bit because they have a tendency of asking a bit more than they should under the circumstances. So that's level number two in terms of complexity. And then level three, I would say, is the operational side. It's great that we have the, the technology to be able to do a lot of these things. It's great that we have legislation, which by and large is flexible enough to allow some of this to happen under the right circumstances. How we actually implement that and how we actually track all of this at the end day and how we keep the information is gonna be the real key. 
I've seen many, many situations where clients have great privacy policy that you can read on their website, but what's being done behind the scenes doesn't exactly mesh. And so having a consistent application within the organization, what you're saying to the public is a key consideration as well. Do you think there's a feasible way to deploy this in such a way that they will meet all these, these privacy requirements? I think there are a lot of organizations that are looking at this issue very, very carefully and they want to do the right thing. So there are a couple of things that can be done uh, and they're very well known. So there's two things I'll mention which are particularly helpful. One is a concept known as privacy by design, meaning when you're developing these applications, you're developing with privacy at the forefront of the engineering process. So when you're developing and you know that these are the key pieces of information that you're going to be collecting, as a result, are you encrypting the data? Are you tokenizing it? Are you anonymizing it? It's at the forefront, not an afterthought after you've already created the application. So having privacy by design built into the engineering process, that's a key consideration. Number two, you want to have what we call a privacy impact assessment done, which is a PIA. So once the application is more or less in beta form, having a PII developed basically analyzes the application, analyzes the personal information it's collecting, and then can tell you where the potential vulnerabilities are going to be from a legal compliance standpoint. And that really will go a long way if you ever have a conversation with a regulator, like a privacy commissioner's office, to say, here's all the effort we had put in to be diligent and do the right thing. Do you think our, our privacy legislation is equipped to deal with this kind of thing? It seems to be almost un, unprecedented. Well, the, you mentioned the, the legislation earlier, but will it have to flex or will it have to be revised going forward in order to account for these kind of things? Yeah, it's a good question. So there, there's two parts to, um, to that answer. One is going to be, is our privacy legislation currently going to be revised? The short answer is yes. We had our federal privacy legislation uh, announced to be revised at some point this year. Um, so PIPEDA, um, when the digital charter came out uh, about a year ago or so, it was announced that there will be some changes for, for our legislation. So that has been put on pause with COVID-19 right now. So query when that's going to come into, into place. But there certainly was talk of having it amended and having a bit more enforcement powers given to the privacy commissioner. The province of Quebec additionally has indicated they're going to be tabling legislation very shortly. So just before COVID-19, the Attorney General of the province of Quebec, which is the second largest province in Canada, had announced a bill that would be very similar to GDPR in the European Union. So that piece of legislation will be updated in, uh, in Quebec, most likely in 2020, if not early 2021. In terms of uh, the second part of the answer, which is, is, is our legislation equipped for this? I think it is. Um, there's a historical division in terms of how Canada has looked at privacy laws versus other jurisdictions. So if you look at the United States, for example, they are much more prescriptive and state-based, meaning you do something or you're offside, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have a penalty associated with it. So for example, they will say if a credit card information is compromised, you will have to do X, Y, and Z. In Canada, we have much more of what we call a principle-based piece of privacy legislation. What that means is they don't really care about the medium. They don't specify what type of specific information needs to be compromised for you to be then required to do X, Y, or Z. But what it does is it allows you a flexible framework, meaning regardless of the technology and regardless of the type of specific personal information, by and large, you should be doing the following, and they'll lay it out in the legislation. And the idea with that was that if it's sufficiently flexible, it will withstand the test of time, which it has by and large. It gives organizations a lot of flexibility. The flip side is 
it also gives a lot of the companies the ability to say, you know what, we are complying with it. And if there's a dispute between them and the commissioner, it could potentially lead to uh, litigation down the road. The upside is it's flexible. The downside is it doesn't have tremendous amount of teeth because you can always argue one side or the other potentially. So I think contact tracing has shown the spotlight on pri the privacy implications, particularly for, for mobile use, but it's not a new discussion by any means. People have been encouraged to be mindful of their apps they're downloading and what they're agreeing to in privacy policies and, and user agreements and things like that. Is this just sort of one more iterative step towards people being more cognizant about how they're using their phones? Are they being tracked anyway? Well, I, I don't know about tracked anyway. I think what ends up happening is you have various applications that do different things. So imagine an application where you're going into a mall to sort of way find your way to a store location. That application does track you geographically to make sure that you, know, you can get promotions and coupons and all kinds of other interesting things that you may be interested in. So there may be some level of tracking going on there. There's the, there's the other concern, which is a bit more, more general, uh, that typically gets picked up in the media about tracking without knowing. That's a bit rare uh, for it to happen without your consent. By and large, more, most people will be asked their consent at some point in time in the process. They may not recall, or they may not recall the details of what the consent actually looked like because it was a lengthy document or it was just a link and they didn't get a chance to review it or didn't review it for whatever reason. That's a different story. But generally speaking in Canada, for you to be able to uh, collect information, geolocation included, um, requires some level of consent, either implied uh, or express. Do you think the increased focus on, on privacy requirements for mobile applications, is that going to cause some companies or providers to maybe take a second look at the way these things are worded, or is it, do you think it's going to cause consumers to be a bit more cautious or diligent about how they, about how they handle these requirements? I think, by and large, it will probably be a bit of both. And, and just to put this in, in a global perspective, this is very much consistent with what's going on around the world. So when you look at the European Union, you look at the United States, you look in some Asian markets as well, a lot of the regulators and governments are saying, you know what, we have no issue with you collecting information to offer a product or service or, or what have you, as long as the consent is an informed consent and the person giving their information is aware of it. And that they are given certain type of rights that go along with it, the right to be forgotten in Europe, for example, is a very well-known example uh, over there and here as well. I think what's going to end up happening is with these these contact tracing applications, to the extent they get rolled out more and more, more broadly, there will be questions on that and the level of consent. I think that's a healthy discussion. And Canada would not be an outlier in those kind of discussions when it comes to you know appropriate level of consent. Okay, thank you very much, Imran, for your answers today. It's been very helpful and, and very insightful. So thank you for taking uh, some time out of your, your busy schedule to join us today. Oh, you bet. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you to my guest, Imran Ahmad, and to our podcast sponsor, Commissionaires. You can find more security-themed podcasts at canadiansecuritymag.com. I'm Neil Sutton. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.